I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. Dirty moderates, I think you know by now that the most important thing we do here at this podcast is fight like hell for democracy. And that is not an empty, hollow phrase. That is not rhetoric. That is not uh, meaningless pablum for the masses. What, what we talk about here is foundational ideas to freedom, to liberty, and to democracy. And, and I will tell you that nothing matters more to me, and I mean nothing than the right to free speech, what that represents, and how that has become um, not just a hot button issue, but it's, it's literally under siege in the United States where it is enshrined in our First Amendment, despite many groups and many types of people trying to um, um, sully that idea and undermine it, which is why today's episode might just make it make my make, might just be my favorite even before we've started it because I have somebody on today. This is the great Jacob Machangama. You are going to know him well after this episode. His book is called Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. I think this could be the definitive book on free speech. Jacob is with us from Copenhagen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Jacob is the host of his own podcast, Clear and Present Danger. He is I think uh, uh, now an essential voice in this space. Uh, he is also the founder of a human rights think tank called Justicia. Um, but his latest book, which came out this past February, is that right? Uh, yes. Again, is uh, really, um, and I want to get into this right away, Jacob. You know, you went back to the beginning, you know, of free speech. I mean, political philosophy majors like me love to think of ancient Rome and Greece and, and then think about Spinoza and the Reformation, all this stuff. But Let's go back to why you wrote this book. Like, what? Yeah. Tell everybody um, what made uh, what was the impetus for this very important um, contribution to uh, something that's really under siege. Yeah, so you know, I'm not a, a dissident, uh, someone who's been living under uh, authoritarian regimes. Uh, so, uh, in, in fact, I've, I, I've grown up and spent the most of my life in, in Denmark, which is a very secular, liberal. Uh, country and 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 you know where press freedom and free speech has been guaranteed for for a relatively long times. Uh, but and and you know like most Danes, I took free speech for granted. It was not something that I really thought that much about. It was just something that I exercised and and was there. And and you know no one uh, had to fear uh, for for you know the consequences for saying something. But then in two thousand and five, a Danish newspaper called Ulands Posten posted a number of cartoons, published a number of cartoons depicting the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And that, um, you could say, made Denmark the epicenter of a global battle of values over the relationship between free speech and religion. And it really also, I think, turned uh, sort of traditional free speech uh, defenders and opponents a bit on their head. So secular uh, progressives on the left became, and I'm generalizing here, but became more defensive about free speech, even started saying that, you know, oh, we're, you're punching down. These cartoons are, you know, racist or bigoted uh, against Muslims. Um, um, and and, um, and, and it, it's, it's an abuse of free speech. Free speech is for, for punching up, uh, basically, um, which I thought was... Uh, a strange argument, given that you know we're talking about a world religion with a, a billion followers, and and that many of the <laughs> many of many of the states that put pressure on Denmark to 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 to, to gov essentially demanded that the government should censor a Danish newspaper were Muslim majority countries where blasphemy laws were used by the majority to silence um, minorities, whether heterodox Muslims or free thinkers, and and, and so on, and also you know. I think when cartoonists and editors are threatened um, with AK-47s for using their pens, then I, you know, uh, it, you know, the, the the power balance right at that moment, you know, it doesn't matter whether yeah, the the guy exercising, you know, writing with their pens is belongs to a majority or minority. Quite quite, uh, you know, the, the power relation there is with the guy with the AK-47 and. Uh, so 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 but but then you know the whole situation developed and then um 
people on the right, after a couple of years, when we got a new center-right government in Denmark, uh, and there was lots of debate about radicalization and immigration. There were terrorist attacks by by jihadists uh, around Europe, and then uh, the government introduced a number of laws that were more or less aimed at radical uh, Islamists, nonviolent radical Islamists. Um, and then you know, I thought, well, people on the right were in favor of free speech in, uh, during the cartoon crisis, so so surely they'll also be in favor of free speech now, but then, you know, things got turned upside down again. And then suddenly people on the right were saying, well, we need to limit free speech in order to save free speech from these extremists. Whereas the left was saying, oh, now we're sacrificing our own values. Um, <laughs> and that just made me very interested in the whole idea of, of free speech. Where does it come from? What does it entail? Um, what what are the consequences of uh, robust free speech protections versus um, versus an unprincipled commitment and, and and so on? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think's been so, um, I guess, fascinating to watch, but also to me very frightening, um, as America's really been on razor's edge. And to be clear, listeners of this podcast know I'm unaffiliated with any party. Um, and, uh, but I do see the right in America, um, and what I call Trumpism or Trump publicanism to be a grave threat to this country and to the American experiment. However, and this is not both sidesism, um, the cultural court, as I call it, you know, um, has become incredibly intolerant, um, has been as a mob. You know, uh, like I always say in America, you know, you're innocent to a proven guilty in a court of law. You're guilty to a proven innocent in the cultural court. As you know, if the mob hates you, you're canceled. If the mob decides that free speech isn't free, you can't say it, you know. And and the interesting thing that I think I've watched and the subject of free speech brings us up is we have come to a place in in America. I can only speak about America, but I know it exists in Western Europe, too, where the the choice of what freedoms we engage in or we are entitled to become absolute in the wrong way, right? So in other words, it becomes, well, you know, yes, of course, there's a First Amendment, but you can't say all of these things. And I don't mean it because it's yelling fire in a crowded theater constitutionally. It's just we you just can't say those things. And, you know, this Second Amendment, we're, we're having, a, as you know, a, a huge problem here because the Second Amendment has to be absolute. You can't have any restrictions. You know, we fall into this into America because I do think we've lost the capacity to critical think. And when a society loses that capacity, right, a society becomes not just closed off, they become defensive and they become um, incapable of understanding an alternative viewpoint, which mm. brings us back to your subject, right? So I don't know who said it, but if free speech, you know, and many people, I guess, have said it, always makes you comfortable, then it's not free speech, right? Yeah, you know, otherwise you wouldn't need the concept. It would just, it would just be a conversation, right? So, so I, I agree with that. And, and I think, you know, it's, the, the situation in the U.S. is a bit of a paradox because on the one hand, the constitutional legal protection under the First Amendment has probably never been more robust and strong than it is currently. Right. So, you know, it, you really have to go out of your way to say something that where you'd be punished for, for your viewpoints, you know, something like uh, in, incitement to imminent violence or, or, or the like, if we're talking political speech. Um, but on the other hand, it seems to me that the culture of free speech is in, in decline in the U.S. Uh, because you're sort of locked in this... Uh, polarization trap, if you like, and, and where political tribalism sort of shapes attitudes towards uh, tolerance and intolerance. Um, and, 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 and very few people have a principled approach to, to, to free speech. And also, I guess, because um, I think, you know, younger generations have become more intolerant of, uh, of, of, of racist or, or perceived racist speech, whereas sort of older generations and boomers and, 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 and that ilk sort of saw the important role that free speech played as an em em emancipatory uh, idea that sort of was, was, was pivotal in sort of paving the way for 
for a greater degree of tolerance towards minorities, uh, whether racial minorities, uh, sexual minorities, you know, attitudes to uh, abortion, war in Vietnam, uh, all these things. And also, just from a legal point of view, the First Amendment uh, and its expansion was critical for the civil rights movement. So in that sense, that, that there's, a, that there's a generation of Americans that saw um, how free speech was absolutely essential to values that uh, that we now that most Americans take for granted. But <clears throat> younger generations who are sort of more progressive liberal have, which is a good thing, become very concerned about racism uh, and the rights of minorities. But they've come to view free speech and and equality as mutually exclusive rather than mutually reinforcing when I think that overwhelmingly the history of the U.S. shows <laughs> the opposite, that, that free speech has been uh, one of the most powerful engines of, of human equality and essential for women, for, for, for blacks, for, for the gay rights movement uh, and, and, and all these. Um, and, um, but, but there's a sort of, you know, if you like, younger generations sort of want to pull up the ladder saying, well, free, free, free speech is, has now become dangerous and, and sort of Thanks, thanks for the ride, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll dump you on the ash heap of history, and, and we have these new principles uh, that that uh, that are much more important. Well, and I think uh, before we go, you know, to the beginning of your book and talk about it, I think what you said is so important: the ash heap of history and how historically marginalized groups have used it. Right? Imagine in the 19th century, had there been no free speech, there wouldn't have been abolitionist newspapers. Right, you wouldn't have heard the right. You wouldn't have heard the cry of Frederick Douglass. You wouldn't have been able to hear Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail in the '60s. I mean, you know, you can and many examples. You know that you wouldn't have been able to hear, you know, the the um, the gay rights movement speak up before and after the age of AIDS and make the advancements. They have all the things that you think that progressives or people on the left would hold dear seem to be dear as long as they think it's dear, <laughs> or as long as yeah. what is to them uh, reconciles with that particular idea. And sure. I, but when you speak about the ash heap of history, this is important. And this is what's important about your book, the world certainly, but I'm going to speak to America because we don't want to have too much generalizing, but this is a generalization, but I'm going to say it. We need a re-education in this country, civically uh, and philosophically in this, in America and about what our principles are, what we mean by democracy, which has, of course, never been, I think, more under assault than it is now. What is liberty? What is the balance of liberty and equality? That plays into a lot about what you write about. And I think this is what I want to talk about. You go, you start the book, and you tell us about the beginning of civilization. You know, you tell us about ancient Greece and Rome, and then we get into the Reformation all, all through history. And, you know, the, the Dutch philosopher um, Baruch Spinoza. You know, I, I, I want you to tell us because I think the gener the youngest generation, though I think well intentioned, proves that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Because they no, because I don't think they understand what free speech is as a principle constitutionally. But that history didn't start with them. Racist dialogue or protest dialogue didn't start with them. It's 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 almost like a narcissistic view of freedom or something that they've decided. Well, we're now going to be offended, so therefore it can't be. Let's go back. Two and a half millennia. Tell us. I mean, that's where you start. And it, yeah. students, listen up. Pay attention. All right, here we go. Yeah. So, so I I locate the origin of free speech in the Athenian democracy, which 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 sort of popped up around twenty five hundred years ago. And for its time, it was quite a radically egalitarian polity in the sense that even uh, the the low born um, ill educated poor citizens had a direct voice in in public affairs they could vote and discuss the laws uh, directly in in the assembly um, of course women were not included there were slaves foreigners did not have a plato believed in the philosopher king right it was yeah know. yeah but but this is the interesting thing so plato and and to a certain extent also aristotle could set up shop in Athens because they also had another concept. They, they didn't just have equality of political speech. They had uh, they were committed to the principle of parousia, which means something like uninhibited speech. So Plato and Aristotle could set up shop and philosophize and teach students and, and write about ideas that were very critical of democracy, the very democracy that allowed them to philosophize uh, the way they did. 
But as Demosthenes, a great orator, uh, said, you know, the difference between Athens and their bitter rivals, Sparta, with whom they were engaged in, in war um, on, on and off uh, for quite a while, quite a while um, he, he said that, you know, if you're in Athens, you can criticize the Athenian constitution and praise the Spartan one. But if you go to Sparta, you can only uh, praise the Spartan uh, uh, constitution. Uh, you can't criticize and you can't say anything nice about the Athenian one. So there you have a very basic litmus test of free speech. Are you able to criticize the uh, political system under which you live? You know, so that's in, in, in the sense, you know, still the litmus test uh, of, uh, of free speech. Um, so, but infused with, with 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 free speech in the Athenian model is uh, sort of a, a, an, an egalitarian democratic uh, ideal that will be revived much later. But I think to a lot of of um, in the early modern era that looked for free speech looked more to the Roman Republic, where you had a more top down elitist conception of free speech in the sense that. Uh, it would mostly be sort of the well-educated, wealthy senatorial elites. Uh, ordinary citizens could not address or speak in, in assemblies the way that they could in, in Athens. And uh, the Romans uh, distinguished between liberty and licentiousness. And much of, of Greek, um, I, many Greek ideas uh, were, were sort of seen as, uh, or at least Greek political philosophy was seen as licentious, this idea of having the unwashed mob be given a, a voice on, in public affairs was seen as as dangerous because it, the mob was too fickle and credulous to to uh, to know what was good for the for the policy. You needed institutional gatekeepers that just so happened to be the wealthy elites. Um, and and interestingly, I think throughout history we see uh, a tension. We see tension between these two um, conceptions. Um, uh, an egalitarian versus an elitist free uh, free speech model, and whichever. You know, whoever holds the the have the privileged access to to free speech will 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 very often err towards the more elitist model because they that means that that provides them with a privileged uh, access to shape the public uh, public sphere. And, you know, I want to interject something. It's very worth noting. You know, when people talk about you know America and it's a democracy and what do we believe in, and I always say not to be the guy, not to say that we shouldn't continue building our democracy. As I keep saying, it's in great peril. Um, you know, the founders, the American founders borrow much more from ancient Rome and then the Enlightenment, of course, than they do ancient Greece because ancient mm. Greece was a direct democracy for to simplify it. And, you know, we are a representative republic. There was obviously the famous Roman Senate, but the Rome... Uh, or the, the government of Rome and ancient Rome, exactly. They, we didn't do it quite this way, not liberty and licentiousness, but the founders did make a country, right, which would be uh, run by the wealthy elites, wealthy male elites. I mean, there wasn't yeah. a direct election of the United States Senate until 1913, you know, until the amendment changed. It was state legislatures that chose it. And, the, you know, they were considered the upper body. The, the house was, you know, the people's house. House of Representatives, but there was no way they wanted anybody to be gathering in a local, you know, pub in Boston to do this. They wanted you to send a Harvard-educated person to uh, originally Philadelphia and then and then DC to to make that you know case for people. So it it's very interesting to see that um, to that to see how that informs our system, which is also to say that our system, of course, has evolved, and we you know. We hopefully have an emancipatory, participatory um, uh, mantra, you know, and and charge built in now to our society. But but we do have what you talk about is what is it? Milton's curse? Can you tell us about yeah, yeah the, the Milton's curse. Yeah, exactly. It's the the, the selective, unprincipled uh, defense of free speech. And John Milton, of course, writes the Areopagitica in in sixteen forty four as right. an attack on the reintroduction of. Um, of pre-publication censorship, uh, and it's a very eloquent, worthwhile read, uh, and many of the arguments still resonate. However, when you read it more closely, you find out that Milton is very much against the idea that Catholics should be allowed free speech. He's against impious uh, and, uh, and dangerous books, and, and he's fully on board with uh, such books being burned by the hangman. He also supports a very tough blasphemy law, 
And the ultimate irony is that he ends up working as a censor under Cromwell during what is essentially wow. a military dictatorship. Oh, wow. um, was, was this book written after Paradise Lost was written? When, when was? Uh, oh, now you're exposing my ignorance. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sure when Paradise Lost was written. But Arapagitica is, is 1644. And, and, and it didn't become very influential just... Um, uh, when it when it came out, but it would later sort of be part of the of uh, of of, of um, you know the ideas that led to the so called glorious revolution and also right. the the canon of, of of the founders. But I think you know returning to to the American free speech tradition, I think the genius of Madison, who drafted what would become the First Amendment, um, was that he actually fused. Uh, the egalitarian and and elitist ideals uh, in, in a sense so so he he saw very he saw that the, the dangers and the shortcomings of the Athenian model because you know as Socrates found out if you uh, if, if you uh, rob the mob the wrong the, the, the wrong way you'll be drinking you hemlock right. you'll be drinking hemlock though I think Socrates could have escaped the death penalty but he was pretty stubborn. I wanted to say because you gave great history about Cromwell and that and when the producers just sent me Paradise Lost was 1667 and I only want to say it because this Milton writes this uh, treatise in 1644 uh, the Cromwellian Republic I think takes place 1649 to 1661 I think. Yeah and, uh, and he's only um He's only a censor for, for a short while. Um, yes. But then, so Paradise Lost is post-Cromwell. England is yeah. no longer a republic. Just anyway, for those who want to know the great poem by Milton, 1667. All right, Jacob, let's get back to it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and, and, and no, but he sees that, you know, uh, as Socrates find, found out, a revengeous mob can can negate the egalitarian nature of free right. speech uh, right. when you have a jury court or your of, of, of several hundred Athenians uh, and, and you decide that your that your strategy defending yourself uh, is to sort of basically mock the the, the, the jurors <laughs> and but so so Madison sees that uh, and and of course uh, so so he he basically fuses the idea of, of a democratic egalitarian conception of free speech with one that also protects uh, against the executive and provides uh, protections. Of, uh, of 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 the minority ag against the majority, so so I think that's his genius. Of course, you know it would take a long time before the Madisonian ideals of free speech became protected by law, because we really have to get into sort of uh, we have to get into the twentieth century before the First Amendment gets real teeth, uh, and we have to get into the fifties and sixties before some of the really strong tough tough protections that uh, are enjoyed today are, are developed. So, um, so, to, so to go to a very important point, you know, your book is called a history from Socrates to social media, but which we have, so we have to talk about the internet clearly and social media, but let's go back before we do, let's talk about the printing press. You write a lot yeah. about that. Uh, and the, you know, the uh, process reformation and how all that plays in and how, you know, basically, I love this because a lot of people don't know this, that before the printing press, people got their news from their Catholic parish and it was in Latin. And then they just get the news their priest kind of told them in the village, basically, you know, there wasn't widely read uh, uh, documentation. So tell us, take us through that a little bit. Uh, the printing press and yeah. how that the, the printing press is is in many ways a game changer um, because um, well uh, as I show in the in the Middle Ages the Middle Ages were not actually not as dark as we sometimes think there were right. sort of small elites of well educated uh, scholars at universities that did much Absolutely. to push the boundaries of, of reason and, and 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 inquiry but but this was sort of a, a closed circuit of of, of scholars, it was not sort of the 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 common man uh, or woman. Um, <clears throat> but it, the the printing press initially is actually welcomed as a divine instrument by the Catholic Church because it allows it to spread its orthodoxy more widely and not rely on sort of uh, ill-educated uh, priests who might uh, mix things up. Um, so, uh, but then you know, propaganda, you know. Yeah, depending on your definition and uh, and, and and religious uh, viewpoints, yes. um, tr truth or propaganda, depending. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, but but then comes uh, along this uh, this ornery constipated German monk uh, and spoils the party. Uh, ornery constipated is that? <laughs> 
I take it's fine by me. I have no love for Martin Luther. No, but 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 he but he 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 was he was famously uh, honorary. You know, you can read that the, the, there's these table talks of his, and you'll see that. He he uh, he had suddenly had a temper. Jacob, you've added the, the term. You've added the moniker or the, the description, apt description of Martin Luther to your brilliant canon. Now the ornery constipated monk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah. So so he challenges, of course, uh, the, the Catholic Church. He 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 comes to find that it has corrupted Christianity. He finds that the the truth uh, in there differs from the, the Catholic Church's uh, version. Right. And so he starts what we now call the, the Reformation, and no one comes close to being as prolific a writer as uh, Martin Luther because right. he ditches sort of the long uh, theological treatises in Latin and writes in the vernacular German, short, punchy treatises accompanied by cartoons that become memes and, you know, pokes fun at uh, at. at at the church and cardinals and, and popes um, with, with sort of very naughty, naughty cartoons and languages. Um, and he basically excels um, is uh, he, he basically excels in uh, what we might call relig religious populism. And, you know, if he yeah. was on Twitter, he would probably be one, you know, one of the most followed uh, oh, yeah. people, people on there because he was just so great at, at, um, at communicating and um, and he I would also, argue though that Martin Luther is very much a cop in the name of religious liberty, though, wouldn't you? I mean, he, he no, he, it, this is the important thing. You know, he 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 becomes extremely the Reformation becomes extremely important for the development of um, freedom of religion and free speech, but it is to a large extent an unintended consequence of the Reformation because Martin Luther is not it's not like he says, oh, well, you know. People should learn to read and write and access the Bible in uh, in, in German uh, in, and then find their own truth. And then, you know, we can sit around uh, the bonfire and you have your truth and I have mine. Uh, you know, he's not an early hippie. or <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, as I, I have to say, my listeners know this, I don't I can't speak for you, Jacob, but as a committed agnostic, just because. I, I just don't know if I'm an atheist because I don't know. But as a committed agnostic, I think that the uh, let's just call it the um, disentanglement of society from an exclusive Catholic Church world of Christianity was a good thing. Um, and I, while I think you know the advent of Protestantism and the challenge to that was good, that unfortunately, as we know, didn't eradicate religious war or. Sell or, or create great notions of free speech. I mean, exactly. Martin Luther said printing is the ultimate gift of God and the greatest one. Now, the gift of God, now you lost me. I think it's the <laughs> gift of, in, no, it's well, the gift of information. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, you know, a, a lot of other people that, uh, you know, I, I, I respect also saw sort of free speech and uh, as a, as a, as a gift from God. So I have no sort of inherent quibble with that. It's just, you know, to which degree are you willing to stand up for it also right. for those who might believe in, in God in different ways or not believe in God at all. And Martin Luther was not in favor of tolerating those who believed in God in different ways right. than himself. And, so and, came, and in contemporary times, right, to the point of your central thesis is free speech is free as long as people agree with it. Now. Yeah, basically. So he basically comes to, he, he comes to favor the death penalty for blasphemers. Uh, he Towards the end of his life, he writes these ragingly anti-Semitic uh, treatises uh, that are later used by the Nazis as, as propaganda. But, um, but there's no denying that the Reformation and the printing press sort of fractures uh, the unity of Europe, uh, erodes the authority of the Catholic Church and, 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 and also of, uh, of, of um, the authority of uh, various princes uh, and rulers. And the... Uh, and moves away from religious uniform, uniformity. And even though no one is celebrating that, everyone still believes that you, religious uniformity is essential. They just disagree about which, uh, you know, which part of Christianity should should be uniform and go to war over that and persecute each other over that. You know, the the the, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, and also by providing you know, ordinary people literacy, it's inevitable that people are going to have different ideas when they read the Bible. And so you have this alphabet soup of, of, of different Protestant uh, sects, and there's just no way to return to religious uh, uniformity. And that will, over time, 
contribute to uh, a, a lot of uh, critical thinking and uh, enga- engagement, discussion, thinking about uh, religion, and and you sort of have a gradual movement of saying, oh well, should we accept? If we can't accept this dogma of Christianity, why this dogma? And then at some point, you end up with people saying, well, are, are there any dogmas at all we should we, we, should, right. we should believe in? And and I think the the Reformation plays a, an important important part in that development. It does. And so, you know, I always had a high school teacher. Oh, wait, excuse me. I once had a high school teacher. They're printing press, grace invention known to man. Now this is in the not right before the internet. Cause I, I'm almost 48, but the big question, you know, you have to, to fast forward to social media is, and it's, it's the broad question you you're obviously always asked and everybody's wrestling with, you know, is, has social media, been the democratizing force we thought it has that it that we assumed it would be or has its most corrosive effects eclipsed any um any real leveling of the playing field i know it's a broad one but it's a broad one yeah you know uh you know let's break it down though yeah (laughs) basically i think it's too early to tell but i would say i believe that you know for all the um for all the the um, disinformation and noise and extremism that allowing billions of people direct and unmediated access to free speech uh, at, a glo- at a global level um, inevitably results in, I think that the world uh, is, is still uh, better for uh, free speech. And I think, and I also think that, you know, I don't think we should think of the digital age as being, you know, We'll, we think, oh, Facebook is uh, horrible, or Twitter is horrible, or you know, YouTube is this or that. Um, but we shouldn't con- confine our idea of the digital age to specific platforms. You know, they, 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 you know, in five years, who knows what kind of new platforms or, or you know, the, the the same way that you know, fifteen years ago, everyone thought the blog was probably the new uh, medium that that was there. That that, that was a sort of what the internet was about, and by the way, I love that. And the, the the blog was was a much more sort of was a much more horizontal internet, and yes. rather than the sort of centralized, um, top down, um, vertical internet of the big platforms. So, so that that to me is, is has been a move in the wrong direction. On the other hand, yeah. you know, I think it's also a bit arrogant, especially in Western democracies. Sort of uh, to to say, oh, it would have been better without social media. Maybe it it would have been better for those who had a privileged access to the public sphere. Right. You know, the, the editors and journalists and and prominent politicians and intellectuals who shape the public sphere. But for ordinary citizens, whose only um, opportunity of of getting to speak to uh, a significant audience was if they if if one of those with the privileged access actually allowed them a platform. <laughs> For two seconds. Well, I think I, I want to jump in at one thing because it's so true, the arrogance of this. I mean, the, the not the, the statement that we know where we, you know, make a blanket statement that something is all bad and we decide it has to change. Certainly, there are some really bad bills, mainly coming from the left or the Democratic Party about regulating big tech. It's preposterous to expand and bureaucratize the government and to treat, I think, and there's a lot of bills out there, but some of them, you know, sort of treat this as well. It's speech, but it has to be regulated, but we're not regulating speech because we're regulating tech. To me, that is a mess. But to your point of, you know, locating something uh, and saying, wow, you know, if this only hadn't happened or if this only wasn't uh, a central factor of political life, I always think of Groucho Marx's quote, and it applies, right? Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedy. <laughs> no, and I, I I do think that that is very very uh, uh, germane or uh, you know integral to your free speech argument. You know what I yeah. mean? Is oh my God, this racist, and they marched in Charlottesville. It's like, well, yeah, they marched in Skokie through an all Jewish neighbor in the ACLU, which I'm no longer a member of. I pulled my membership card three years ago because they don't support free speech anymore. They defended them. As heinous as it is, I'm a Jew. How heinous, how horrible. But if you don't have that, you don't have free speech. I'm not defending yeah, Nazis. Yeah, I know some people yeah, listen yeah. to this and say we are. No, we're not. We're defending the principle of the open expression 
of hate speech, which in America is constitutionally protected. That's just the way it is. And also, you know, uh, the, the, the idea that, you know, so for instance, I, I show that uh, in uh, when the uh, transatlantic telegraph was, was, was established, the New York Times in 1858 wrote uh, uh, an editorial where they said that, you know, the telegraph was was too um, too fast and unsifted uh, to for, to to reliably rely the truth. So so that that's, wow. that's an argument that, that that's that's very similar to, to sort of the disinformation misinformation arguments that you that you hear uh, today. And 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 uh, you know go back to two thousand and six. Barack Obama was a junior senator from Illinois, and he praised the internet, you know, because it allowed him to say what he wanted without censorship. And he wanted the Facebook generation in 2008 and 2012, you know, relied a lot on big tech for his campaign. That 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 is something that we've forgotten. And now in, in 2020, after after the 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 presidential election and and sort of the the big lie that was um, and, and, and sort of this campaign of insane conspiracy theories by 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 Trump and 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 many other Republicans he sort of said that now the uh, the internet social media had become the greatest threat against uh, democracy so that there you see sort of how elite panic breaks <laughs> out very often when it comes to communications technology and that is certainly not uh, anything new we've also seen it with newspapers we've seen it with radio uh, and so on. Now, that doesn't mean that that there are no harms and costs of social media. I think, you know, I don't think that uh, the January capital could probably not have would not have taken place without social media spreading these uh, uh, lies. But is that an argument against free speech? I think, you know, uh, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security knew that all these messages were being spread, and if they'd beefed up security. And maybe paid more attention to some of the central nodes in, the, in this network of insane conspiracy theories that uh, they could probably have nipped it in the bud before words turned into action. Uh, and and in that sense, I, I think actually, in many ways, it's a competitive advantage for an open democracy to know that you have extremists and that there are people who think in in uh, in, in ways that are antithetical to the basic values of society. Is it better that 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 you know? those views are not aired, that you don't have the opportunity to find out that they exist, potentially counter it, or at least whether you are able to convince them otherwise, or at least build uh, defense mechanisms to, to cope with it when they, uh, when they take their extreme ideas to, uh, from, from, from words to action. Yeah, people, that, well, that's been, the, I think, the, um, the huge stumbling block and, and the real blind spot, I guess is a better word, of, this, of the younger generations who don't think that anything that they deem abhorrent, whoever they is, should be heard, you know, and, and not hearing it out is the way to act like we have a freer society when the reverse is obviously true. And, and it also is an ostrich mentality, isn't it? To sort of say that, well, we're never going to listen to it, so we don't know because we're so in a silo. And that silo is protected and 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 right and encased and, and guarded and the it, it's it it it's just it makes no sense because neither you or I are saying we get great pleasure by listening to white nationalist rhetoric. I'm assuming you know what I mean. It's not like whoa, boy, that's good stuff. But what we're able to do right is know what the hell they're saying and therefore know how to address it. I mean, I know this, this is what you wrote your book on is I'm saying this to the listeners. It's so obvious guys, liberal listeners. And I have many, please listen to this. I understand you're offended. That's okay. Okay. You, you have in America under our first amendment, you have a first amendment. People have first amendment protection to be complete racist assholes. They just do. I don't like that. They are, I'm fighting against it. I sure Jacob this, it totally agrees with me, but I'm just pointing that out there. But Jacob, go ahead. I was yeah, no, and and um, I, I think one of the interesting things is you know in the U.S. obviously there are still problems with 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 racism when you look at the criminal justice system and 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 so on. Though you know my own experiences of of, of living in the U.S. Uh, and and traveling there uh, very frequently, I, I you know I I don't I wouldn't characterize. The U.S. as sort of um, uh, a country based on, on on white supremacism, as as, as some do, but um, but there, of course there, there are challenges. But I but I also think that it's undeniable that there's been made huge progress. So if you look at attitudes towards 
acceptance of interracial marriage. It was something like 4% of Americans in 1958, and today it's it's nine, in the 90% um, that, that, that who accept interracial uh, marriage. Um, when you when it when you goes to same sex marriage, I think it's now something like seventy percent. There's even a plurality of of Republicans. I thought it would have been higher, actually. Yeah, yeah, but you know, in in Denmark, it wouldn't be very high. But you know, Americans are more socially conservative generally than yeah. than, than than Europeans, Western Europeans. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the, the the point is that over that over time, you've seen a, a rapid increase in tolerant attitudes, and that has happened at a time where the First Amendment has been strengthened legally uh, and constitutionally. Not a, you know, no one has been convinced that interracial marriage is fine uh, uh, and, uh, by someone being censored or put in jail for opposing interracial uh, uh, marriage in, uh, by, by writing uh, an op-ed or, or, or saying it. Um, so to a large extent, I think, as I mentioned before, that Free speech is the most powerful, most important tool and weapon of every group that has been persecuted, uh, whether, uh, um, you know, blacks, women, um, LGBT uh, community and so on. You know, how do you convince uh, other people uh, that you should in- enjoy equality? Well, you do that by, you know, shining a light on injustice, you know, showing white America, the reality of Jim Crow laws in the right. South, you know, Martin Luther King being arrested 29 times, um, you know, pictures of white policemen with dogs uh, um, attacking peaceful protesters. Um, you know, I remember going to Little Rock, Arkansas and, and going up to, to Little Rock Central High and seeing these pictures of these black students who were finally admitted into um, to the high school, but had to be protected by the National Guard. And you see these white uh, people standing with placards um, saying that, you know, race mixing is communism and shouting these uh, evil things at, at these poor uh, black students. That to me, you know, you know, that's access to information. You're, you're, you're documenting that. And, and, and you're also, you want to petition politicians. Uh, you want to make protests. You want to, demonstrate in the streets you want to make newspapers uh, publications uh, and all of that depends on uh, on free speech and i think it's you know when you compromise that especially if you're a minority it's a very dangerous game because if you compromise free speech as a principle you're only ever a political majority away from being the target rather than the beneficiary of laws against hatred and offense well and i always ask this i i always put it more to my progressive friend i don't have really any far right wing friends anyway but even i say this as sort of um i guess a free speech libertarian who who is the you know they say oh, you can't say that i said well, who's the, who's the they that says i can't in other words there's this amorphous, I call it cultural court. There's amorphous body that is sort of blobbing through the <laughs> the ether, I guess, right? Because I, no one can. When you asked, you said you're saying that this can be said. Who's the arbiter of that? I said we have a government, I'm, and obviously we, this is outside the legal realm. You know, in the cultural court, we we don't have. You know, we're free from government censorship, and I understand you might not say certain things in polite company. But what do you mean I'm not allowed to say something that I know is a secular enlightenment value, right? That somehow you say a group of people are offended by. Why am I not allowed to say it again? You know what I mean? This is yeah. this is a yeah. sort of uh, this could become a you know a, a philosophical you know swirl here. But you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's that's again the the culture of free speech becoming more intolerant. And I think ultimately. The culture of free speech is likely to be decisive of to, to where the legal lines are drawn because the, the First Amendment was ratified in 1791. The wording hasn't changed, no. but you know today it protects so much more speech than it did, uh, you know, uh, previously, and that's because of the changes in underlying attitudes and uh, you know values and, and morals of, of ordinary Americans that filter through to the Supreme Court uh, and, and those justices. So if the underlying culture becomes more uh, intolerant, then it's also likely that 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line, the First Amendment is going to be interpreted in a more speech-restrictive manner than, than today. So, the, so that's why I think it's, it's, it's a crucial battle to fight for, for free speech at the cultural level. And that's actually also a point that was made by very astute 
um, uh, observers and, and writers on free speech like John Stuart Mill, like Tocqueville, like George Orwell, uh, like Frederick Douglass, um, the, the importance uh, of of private threats to free speech, even if even if it's often you know it's 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 much less it's much more difficult to sort of um, when it when it's private threats to free speech uh, rather than than government restrictions. Government restrictions is, is is often sort of a bright line. You know, these are clear principles. It it often becomes much more difficult to discern. You know, what is cancel culture? What is not cancel culture? Um, it, uh, it it becomes more fussy, but nonetheless extremely important. And to me, one of the the biggest uh, one of the essential points is that you know. If if I if I say something on the Dirty Moderate podcast and 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 a lot of people on Twitter think that my arguments are really weak or that you know I'm I'm legitimizing racism and they pile on me on Twitter, fine, I'll have to suffer that. You know, I participate. Well, we don't in the cancel here, so you'll never be canceled. Don't worry. No, but you know, <laughs> it, it could get a life of its own. So sure. if, if one, people want to do that, I might not feel great about it. But that's you know part and puzzle. It's another thing if you try to have people, you know, suffer economic, financial, uh, or disciplinary consequences because that's not engaging with their arguments. No, you know, it might not be the strongest argument in the world to call me an asshole, but you know, at least it's an opinion. And you know, I guess uh, depending on on how you view me, that 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 might be true. But uh, but if you go after someone like a, 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 a university professor. Uh, who writes something on Twitter and says he should be fired rather than rather than just criticizing him? Then I think uh, we that, that's that's where I would draw the line. That's where I, I see an undermining of the the, the culture of free speech. Yeah, I, I, um, and you write about that. I mean, you, you know, it's obvious, and you write it, uh, you know, very clearly. And and a lot of people still don't know it. It's like you know, you in, when you in Stalinist Russia, you were sent to the gulag. You know, if you spoke out, I mean, people don't really, you know what I mean? You were not, you know, the and media is the enemy of the people. It's a Stalinist trope, a concept that Trump deployed regularly, you know, which led to the murder. Putin has certainly murdered and poisoned journalists and, and many totalitarian regimes have. But you're right. Not that we're doing that here. But when you start to get to a place where if something is said, let's say on this podcast or in your book or whatever, Twitter goes wild and it it, it somehow seeps into um, the cultural vein, right? Our DNA. And it, you're right. Who knows a decade down the road, how that manifests. We got to be very careful. Um, and we're not being careful. And that's what scares me about liberal principle, liberal in the classical sense. Right. Yeah. And I, and I also think, you know, uh, I, and I don't think it's exclusively progressive liberals. I think, you know, maybe in, in universities, because universities are predominantly Liberal, progressive, in that you know the the, the staff and, and students much more so than, than than the rest of America. I think there's a temptation, maybe, that, that on, on the part of students and staff to want to police certain opinions because they're confident that those who uh, who gets to decide reflect their own values. Uh, but we're we're definitely also seeing, you know. Attempts by Republican uh, states to adopt these bills against critical race theory, banning books, uh, and severe consequences for free speech and the culture of free speech, also because you know a lot of these bills, it seems to me, are likely to be uh, deemed unconstitutional, especially oh, if, when they when they when they're dealing with 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 uh, colleges and so on. But it that it's the fact that politicians will will table these bills, knowing full well that they will get struck suggests that they get that you know there's a reward there's a political reward from fighting this culture war uh by limiting free speech uh, in certain red states and and that 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 is uh, i think uh, i think a sad I, predicament it's a sad predicament i think that we we're by no means am i excluding the right As a matter of fact they're my bigger target but 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 Seeing the traditional liberal, not classical liberal, liberal America now of a younger generation, call them the left, become illiberal to me is a scarier thing. The right is illiberal. They've been illiberal, and then they the Trumpism is is beyond illiberal. You know, it it is a a, uh, a cult of personality, and it, it is authoritarian. All you know what I mean. So I I just to see young people who I believe were educated and ready to think come up with very contorted, and I would argue. Uh, really um, deeply misguided views of what freedom and the First Amendment, how those are related, that scares me. 
because, sure. you know, obviously the left in America, communism and, and left wing ideology, and I'm not saying that's happening here, and this is not Fox News, but I'm saying that, you know, that has curdled into horrific uh, uh, despotic regimes too in history. Let's not forget that. Obviously. Sure. Sure. Right. And, uh, and, and also just because, you know, traditionally people who go to college and are more educated will have been those who were more tolerant and more in favor of free speech. So if that, if that relationship starts breaking down, that's, yep. that, that suggests uh, a perilous future for free speech. Peter Fritchie was on here. He wrote this great book called Hitler's First Hundred Days, and he taught me something that I never knew. Hitler's most fervent supporters were university students. Oh. I know. That's why it's, it's something, right? I mean, so you're right. I mean, you, you, you know, universities can become hotbeds of whatever, whatever horror they are. But what I was going to say, back to Tocqueville for a second, as you referenced him, and I think the best political theory book, and that was my training, was Dem- is Democracy in America. Tocqueville noted two things in the United States. We speak about private ideas of, of free speech that Americans would sort of fear or that would be authorities. They would exist as authorities. Um, uh, in a, um, uh, what's the word, um, governmental sense and non-governmental sense, right? The, the first idea was they were afraid of the state, but the second was public opinion. Yeah. And that brings us to our end to say that the court of public, Tocqueville saw people's fear of public opinion. Public opinion is a hidden authority and an, ex, an overt authority. And guess what? It is playing the role of regulator as a hit it is this hidden authority again that's bringing us to this this place where we're where we're you know being challenged to think differently jacob your book is fantastic um i can't say it enough uh guys free speech uh history from socrates to social media jacob Machangama has written, I think, the ultimate book. This is it. And it's not hyperbole. I want everybody to read this. And I want everyone out there. I know many of you are dirty moderates, but all my my left-wing buddies, please think about this. You know what I mean? We're just defending the right to say it, as they say. Jacob, come back, see me anytime, okay? We thanks. thanks I'd love to, Adam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. 